Hello, and welcome to Dictatorum, episode 1.3, The One September Coup. Last time we examined the early life of Muammar Gaddafi and the events that led up to the One September Coup, the event which would put him in charge of Libya for the next 42 years. But how did he do it? What did he aim to accomplish? How was he able to take control of a country with such vanishing speed? How was he able to maintain this control for more than four decades? We'll examine at least a couple of these questions in this episode, so let's get back to it. As we mentioned in the previous episode in August 1969, Libya's King Idris took a holiday to Greece combined with some medical tourism in Turkey. Prior to his departure for Greece, Idris penned an abdication letter in favor of his late brother's son and heir apparent, Hassan Asanusi. Remember, Hassan had some cursory exposure to governance, but not really enough to allow him to take the helm of the ship without some significant growing pains. He had negotiated some arms deals with the Americans and the British, but nothing of the caliber of running a whole country. Despite this lack of tangible experience, the abdication was scheduled to take effect on Tuesday, 2 September 1969. Although the abdication was intended to be a closely guarded secret, rumors of the pending transition leaked out. Gaddafi got word and decided the Free Unionist Officers Movement would take their shot before the handover of power. If Gaddafi could stage a coup while the old monarch was on his way out, then the already planned transition would just favor him instead of Hassan. August saw a flurry of activity from the group, although not without his own share of hiccups. First, the members of the movement had seen the coup plot postponed so many times that some of them didn't believe it would actually be carried out. Furthermore, some of the officers in the movement were scheduled to be sent to the UK for training in early September. In addition to that, the Libyan authorities were closing in on Gaddafi's free unionist officers movement. Luckily for him, the authorities never took the FUOM seriously. They probably thought Gaddafi was more crazy than the Mad Hatter, and not a calculated and driven officer capable of actually doing real harm to the king's regime. It was a fatal mistake on their part but they were also busy looking at other, seemingly more dangerous groups, and there were only so many resources to go around. Nevertheless, the coup had to happen before the movement's strength was sent off to the UK for training, before it was rolled up by the authorities, and before it just fell apart due to lack of activity and bad morale. So throughout August, Gaddafi and his closest confidants prepared the group for the coup. They wrote instructions for their participants, which would eventually number approximately 70 people, and sealed them with wax before sending them across the country. Gaddafi ordered that on the day of the coup, all the coup participants were to perform their normal duties until the end of the workday, which was noon on August 31st, before making their way to the designated jump-off positions. That day, some of the men were so nervous and excited that they couldn't keep their poker faces on. One, Yunis al would later go on to play a prominent role in the regime, but he was so enthused that he looked drunk to the point of being paralyzed. While others looked so intent, it was as if they were about to be martyred. It's probably a small miracle that they didn't tip their hand early and foil the coup before it even got started. Way to play it cool, F-U-O-M. Gaddafi later recalled that because of the F-U-O-M's previous failures at launching a coup, one revolutionary asked to speak to him personally before believing the plot was actually real. After Gaddafi convinced him that, yeah, they were actually going to do it this time, the officer had to jump on a plane and make it to his jump-off point. The plane was already full, and he had to call in a favor with a friend to get on board. 
Then, he had to get in a car and drive from Tripoli to a base near the Tunisian border. He made it to his assigned pre-coup location with only minutes to spare. Unfortunately for him, he was in such a hurry that he forgot his gun and ammunition. Gaddafi and his close confidant Mustafa Karoubi went to their assigned location, which was Gaddafi's room, where they laid on a bed waiting for their time to act. Zero hour was 2.30 in the morning on 1 September, and they had to wait until the proper time. To keep their cool and to increase their motivation, they listened to the voice of the Arabs, an Egyptian government-sponsored radio station known to play Nasser's speeches. I guess Gaddafi could still find him motivating, just as they had when he was a student in Fazan all those years before. After all, they were trying to build a state that mirrored Egypt. The station also allegedly recited some verses from the Quran, which Gaddafi took as a sign of his eventual success. As zero hour arrived, the small band of coup plotters, scattered throughout the country, launched their operations. Speed and the element of surprise would be crucial to the coup, as they didn't have the numbers or the weaponry to really put up much of a fight if it came to that. Mistakes similar to the officer who left his gun and ammo would make the whole coup seem like a scene from a slapstick comedy movie rather than the complete overthrow of a legitimate government overnight. They made all kinds of mistakes during the short course of the coup, and they threatened to ruin carefully laid plans. A group assigned to take over a Tripoli radio station got lost, and then when they finally got to their destination, the soldiers guarding the place fired on them because they thought the coup plotters were Israelis pulling some kind of covert op. In another location, a Free Unionist Officers Movement tank caught fire due to a short circuit, but luckily didn't explode, which saved precious amounts of explosives the plotters had stored inside. Finally, after Gaddafi's group gathered and started towards their objective, which was the radio station in Benghazi, the column following him made a wrong turn. This mistake could have been fatal, because this put most of Gaddafi's men on a collision course with an army unit located just down the same road. Even after years of preparation, it took a decent amount of luck to see the coup plotters through the night. But, the revolutionaries did make it through the night. Gaddafi and his troops seized communication lines, and they took over that radio station they almost didn't make it to at all. Communications, obviously, were Gaddafi's specialty. It wouldn't make sense that these revolutionaries under his tutelage would go for these communication lines. Amazingly enough, the army bit did basically nothing once they realized the coup was happening. Its head, Colonel Abdul Aziz al-Shehi, jumped into his pool when the conspirators came to arrest him. He was eventually found there in the morning, still in his pajamas. The elite paramilitary force Idris set up to protect a monarchy, called the Cyrenaican Defense Force, or SIDEF for short, hardly put up a fight either. Although it was smaller than the National Police, it was an elite fighting unit that was well equipped. Too bad when it came time to use it, just melted away like hot butter. But how did it fall so easily? The FUOM arrested its leader, Brigadier Sanusi Fazani, who was at home in bed. Once that happened, the force was effectively neutralized. There was one firefight with some SIDEF personnel, which resulted in one dead and 15 wounded SIDEF soldiers, but no other firefights were reported that night. When the heir to the throne, Hassan al-Sanusi, got wind of the plot, he turned out all the lights at the palace he was hiding in. Surprisingly enough, it actually fooled the first group of FUOM's officers who came to arrest him and a second group had to go in a little later and actually dig him out of his hiding spot. 
So, before the night was out, Gaddafi had neutralized three of the most powerful men in the country. And with the king away, there was no one left to direct resistance to the coup. And that was it. Without someone in the apex of the pyramid, both the army and the Sidaf were incapable of dealing with a few dozen guys running around to try to take over Libya using a hope, a prayer, and a handful of bullets. For all the money Libya had poured into its military and police, for all the British training, and all the American military might sitting right down the road from downtown Tripoli, King Idris's government fell in a few hours. By 7 a.m., the Free Union officers had taken the country in their grasp. It would take a few days for the FUOM to take complete control of the country, but essentially, they'd accomplish all their major objectives. And at the head of this revolution was a 27-year-old upstart from the desert who had nothing but big plans for his homeland. So as the sun was rising on 1st of September 1969, Gaddafi made a proclamation over the radio waves declaring his seizure of Libya from the monarchy. The text of his pronouncement read, People of Libya, in answer to your free will, fulfilling your dearest wishes, welcoming your constant request for change and eruption, as well as your desire for action and enterprise, listening to your calls to revolt, your armed forces have undertaken to overthrow the reactionary and corrupted regime whose stench suffocated and whose vision horrified us. In a single blow, your valiant army has upset the idols and smashed their effigies. In a single stroke, it has illuminated the dark night which succeeded one another, first the Turkish and Italian domination, then finally that of a reactionary and rotten regime where reigned concussion, fractions, felony, and treachery. From now on, Libya is a free and sovereign republic named the Libyan Arab Republic, which, by the grace of God, is setting herself to work. She'll go forward on the path of freedom, union, and social justice, guaranteeing each of her sons and daughters the right to equality and opening before them the door to honest work, from which shall be banished injustice and exploitation, and where no one shall be either master or servant, where everyone shall be free brothers within a society where shall prosperity and quality, by the grace of God, give us your hands, open your hearts to us, forget all adversities, and make front molded in a single block against the enemy of the Arab nation, the enemy of Islam, the enemy of humanity, who set our sanctuaries afire and flouted our honor. Thus shall we build our glory, revive our inheritance, vindicate our ravaged dignity, and the rights we were deprived of. Oh, you who witnessed the sacred struggle of our hero Omar al-Mukhtar for Libya, for Arabism, and for Islam. Oh, you who fought alongside Ahmed al-Sharif for a just ideal, your sons of the desert, your sons of our ancient cities, your sons of our green countryside, you sons of our beautiful villages, for the time for work has arrived. Let us go forward. At this juncture, I am pleased to tell our foreign friends that they must fear neither for their properties nor for their lives. They are under the protection of the armed forces. Moreover, I wish they would rest assured that our present undertaking is directed neither against nor against any acknowledged international treaty of international law. This is an exclusively domestic affair concerning Libya and her endemic problems. Forward then, and peace be with you. Shortly after Gaddafi read his proclamation to the people, Libyan army units en masse declared their support for the revolution. The same went for remaining police units and large segments of the population. They'd become fed up with the revolving door of prime ministers. 
with the petty and large-scale corruption that was the hallmark of the Libyan government under Idris. Gaddafi had pulled off a coup with almost no bloodshed, just one dead and a couple dozen wounded. It's really remarkable in world history. It's even more remarkable when you think about how bloody most coups and their subsequent purges tend to be. We'll see a lot more bloodshed from future dictatorial takeovers, and more blood from even Gaddafi, but his takeover was a pretty non-violent affair. The next day, King Idris sent an emissary to London to beg for British aid to regain control, but Her Majesty's government was unwilling to help. As early as 1961, the British government had concluded that it would be unwilling to use force to help any Libyan regime stay in power, and they stuck by their guns this time. Idris didn't have anyone else to turn to, and so his regime came to an end. Idris himself would eventually end up in exile in Egypt, where he would die in 1983 at the age of 94. Join me next time as we explore what happened in the immediate aftermath of the September 1st coup. <laughs>